Hi everyone, this is Corina and Angel. Welcome to The Human Show, proudly presented and supported by worldpodcast.com. Here we explore the relationships between people, technology and business. Join us on this journey where we interview anthropologists, other researchers and industry people from all over the world, from India to Kenya, US, Europe, to right back here in New Zealand. Hi friends, in today's episode we are talking to Fumiko Ichikawa, co-founder and managing director at Republic. We talked to Fumiko about how a natural disaster in Japan was her catalyst for a career transition from a researcher in the technology space to a facilitator of urban innovation with her own company Republic. We talk about her involvement with the Fukuoka Innovation Studio and the type of relationships people build with cities, citizenship, identity and craftsmanship. We hope you enjoy it. Hi friends, we are here today with Fumiko, co-founder of Republic. Fumiko, I'm very excited to share um, your experience with our listeners. Um, but before we got, uh, dive deeper into it, um, tell us a bit more about you. What has been your career so far with um, research design and technology? Yes, uh, thank you, Karina. Um, so my name is Fumiko. I'm based in Tokyo. Um, I run a company called Republic together with um, two of um, other managing directors. Um, it's unfortunately, um, has been quite a long time since I became an adult and started to work. <laughs> it's amazing how quickly the time flies. Um, I graduated from, uh, school here in Japan, uh, majored in, uh, human computer interaction. And after that, um, at the time I was really fascinated by Don Norman's book, um, and I started to think about what is the relationship between people and technology. And I was really passionate about being in that field. However, I didn't really see which company I should be going for in order to pursue that career. And it happened to be so that um, one of the telecom company, um, Nokia, has been looking for some um, interns. And that's how I ended up being in Finland, first for two months, then six. Hmm. And then I ended up being in um, Finland for five years and with Nokia, uh, approximately 10. What, what do you think kept you in Nokia for so long? I think I was at the very, very good time, meaning that initially I was still thinking that it is very technology driven meaning that there are some new emerging technologies which is ready for us to use in the society. But then eventually we realized um, through the how the company was discovering its new customers. Initially, it was about mature markets, uh, Europe. But then eventually I learned in the process that most of our concepts were not coming from us through technology but it was already existing in the people, in the lives of the people everywhere in the world. Mm. And that's how I got into this field of more ethnographic or anthropological, depending on where you stand, you might use different terms, but it was more society or human centric. Mm. Uh, and that really fascinated me. And eventually I went to China, uh, which was one of the very important 
office for Nokia, where most of the emerging market products were developed. And I had lots of um, opportunities where I was able to be out of the office and then see what is happening in the society today. Yeah. What, what, um, what has been one of your um, favorite projects from that experience? Um, so one thing that I didn't realize until I was part of that process was that first we thought um, very much technology driven, meaning that uh, we developed, for instance, um, scratch cards for uh, people to pay for different time or minutes. I think we've hoped that would help someone who have a very um, little amount of savings to talk to someone else. But then it turned out that the same technology that we hoped for serving to the individual users were used to transfer money. And that was like a big um, wow moment for me that somehow, you know, you offer a certain infrastructure Mm -hmm. And then people would be able to discover how that could be utilized in order to overcome their challenges in the everyday lives. And perhaps the purpose for the companies is to really assure that system to work or to um, sort of scale so that perhaps one person in one country can talk to the other. I, I I love it. And I think there's so many, sometimes you see these embedded assumptions in technology products that we're going to build it like a black box and to the, to the problem that we imagine you have, and then you're going to use it. It's awesome when you see these products that are built as an infrastructure, as you, as you say, that allow you to exercise your agency, manipulate them. Um. Yeah, I'm sure that everyone had that moment, Yeah, especially if you are um, in the field and also work for a certain company or um, institution. Mm -hmm. I'm sure everyone has this type of experiences in the past. What about ethnography? How have you experienced it? One thing was, of course, through that job experience, but also once I was back in Japan and started working with another people, other people in the uh, across different industries. I've started to learn that there are other um, people outside of the telecom industries who are actually practicing um, this type of um, quite intensive yet uh, rather qualitative approach to understand what is happening in our society or in everyday lives. So that's how I really started to be aware of this word ethnography and ethnographic research. And um, I started to do more collaboration once I left Nokia. What sparked your um, transition from the corporate world to where you're at right now? How, how, why and how did it happen for you? Well, I don't think I was really in the, uh, I was in control. <laughs> uh, Nokia obviously had the big um, ups and downs. And of course, one of the downs was that the handset um, market was changing much more rapidly than the company was sort of um, hoping for. Mm. And Japan being not a very strong market for uh, Nokia, it was one of the uh, first sites to be shrunk, uh, shrinking. Mm. And I was at the time in the Nokia design team. And at that point, I had this choice of whether I would stay with the company or perhaps um, see what is the application or 
how can I actually contribute to the country that I was born to, <laughs> born <laughs> in? So um, I chose to stay in Japan. I chose Latter and then left Nokia. Mm-hmm. And um, why Republic? After that, I joined another company in Japan. So I, I didn't immediately start up the company. But um, Republic was basically born because of the、um, big earthquake that took place in Japan in 2011.、Um, it took approximately、uh, lives of 20,000 people. So it was very big and has had a lot of impact to. Um, not just financially, but also socially, and the way we perceive how the future could be. And that was also a moment for me to think about what is it that、um, I could do. And before that,、um, I've already started this process of、um, thinking about innovation and ecosystem,、um, whether it being a nation level or a city level. But、um, when I started to apply those、um, thinking and some of my practices, which was pretty much consulting basis, into the actual cities, which really need to reinvent themselves after the tsunami has hit,、mm. um, I realized that most of my thinking or the way I did things didn't work. Uh, the specifically, the reason why it didn't work was because I thought、um, such design and research process was to be done by the experts. Yeah.、Hmm. But in reality, what I realized was that once the citizens or the people inside of the city have those skill sets in their hands, and if they are able to、um, participate and take actions in the research, Um, it was much more powerful and had a long lasting influence so that actual businesses or impact can be seen. And that was basically the moment that I thought that, okay, so if I are to address something beyond、um, elitism <laughs> or <laughs> specific corporations, then、uh, we need to have,、um, we need to set up the company so we can actually. Help different type of、um, cities and governments of different scale. Yeah. How, how was it for you to kind of start、um, reframing your own profession in a certain way? I suppose that、um, when there is a、um, fairly large、um, change in, the,、uh, in front of your eyes, it's quite easy to、um, make that choice.、Mm. And I think、um, disaster,、uh, having that kind of natural disaster was one of those cases. Mm-hmm. And um, so it, for me, it was、um, not really a choice, but more like a determination. <laughs> <laughs>、um, since consulting really would be you know, more catered towards a single client, whereas city or、um, More sort of、uh, administrative、um, people would have,、um, they have agenda beyond a single institution. Yeah, yeah. So、uh, I knew that、um, the whole sort of、um, brand or the、yeah. uh, 
um, company has to be uh, addressing that rather than trying to continue to work that way. Beyond yeah. Do, do you think looking back that you would have gotten in that space anyway, uh, meaning more participatory type of um, work? Um, or maybe the... Regardless. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And maybe the Earth Cave was just a powerful catalyst that propelled you faster into that space. But do you do you see in your... Um, I would say so. I hmm. think I think it was a matter of time. But probably the time lag would have been, say, 10 to 15 years. Yeah. Which which, which means that I will spend most of my time in a more uh, traditional um, sort of a corporate or let's say perhaps somebody would come up with the request to do research, whereas nowadays it's more that we take initiative or have more proactive commitment yeah uh, with the city projects yes yeah this is this is great it really resonates with my own experience because i was in the oh, that's nice. yeah i was in the corporate space for a long time doing um branding and strategy and uh, nice. at one point i was in brazil and i was working for this um very different company that used anthropology to understand behavior and philosophy actually um oh, <laughs> yes and that's how i ended up um engaging with anthropology and I just never looked back but it took me a long time to um to to transition into that space so I'm thinking yes. you know like maybe would have been nice to have my own kind of catalyst that would do that for me five years before but <laughs> it's it's <laughs> nice it's also um it's this feeling that well it, at the time that I started up the company together with um, Hiroshi Tamura, Tamura, which is my co-founder of Republic, I, I wasn't really, I didn't have that kind of conviction how significant it hmm. is that you yourself um, has to change the way you see things. Hmm. I didn't realize, uh, I knew as a researcher that is important for myself or to... Um, leave this story to convince others because it requires a lot of passion and also a lot of um, work. But um, as I um, started to give away my position as a researcher and it became a facilitator and let other people do this type of job um, as a part, as a more, almost like a foundation of them to come up with great ideas or new businesses. <laughs> to really rewrite your perspective and to have new understanding or new perspective and things, what's happening in the society and how things are. So I, I think it was a really like a addiction. <laughs> but I don't have an addiction to be anthropological perhaps, but it, it's now more a conviction that I sort of preach to others and probably yeah. it constructs the foundation of what we do today yeah to, to give a more tangible um how do you say example to to what you're talking I, i'd love if you can tell uh both me and our listeners more about the the project innovation studio fukuoka i hope i'm pronouncing it correctly yes, um uh yeah i read the chapter that you sent me and i just found it fascinating so if you could just tell us a Great. bit more about it so um, Fukuoka is one of the uh, big cities in Japan, uh, situated in the south and uh, in a region called Kyushu. Um, it's one of the most vibrant cities in Japan today because um, average age of the citizens is perhaps the youngest among the cities. And uh, that's really against the uh, what is happening to most of 
um, the areas here in Japan because which is depopulating and aging above, um, above all the other problems. Um, so Fukuoka City is really vibrant and has um, 20 um, high, higher education institutions, which is a lot. But um, when it comes to uh, finding a job, especially finding a creative job, um, people just go out from Fukuoka and leave uh, permanently. <laughs> and um, let alone Japanese, but also foreign students which came to study in Japan for, say, engineering or maybe medical uh, sciences. So um, the city came to us saying that if they could help us to foster entrepreneurship in Fukuoka City. And because that was one of our first projects um, with the local government, um, we set up the office there, um, apart from the Tokyo, which I now am talking with you, and um, started to really see um, what actually are the assets and who are the stakeholders of the city. So we started to look into it and then realized that perhaps it's not only students, but there are also some other people who are there to run a certain business, but um, preferably they are trying to address something bigger than what they are doing today. Um, so that's how we started to set up this innovation studio of Koka. So it's basically last four, five to six months. And then we've run for approximately four years, uh, funded by the city and also its directive council, and uh, try to address some of the um, more like a larger um, complex issues beyond uh, one person's business or entrepreneurship. And how have you um, how have you observed your impact with this project? So it's. Interesting because many people thought now, I think when you, when you talk, talk about incubation or acceleration, most of the cases, the participants already have certain seeds of business or perhaps a technology that they would like to um, bring mm -hmm. into the market. Whereas we started off and then we'll spend like, say, at least one month sometimes two months, and some people will get into it and do this kind of uh, research um, for um, throughout the, the period of this uh, program. And what we are trying to do is really what we just talked about before in discussing this Fukuoka project, um, to really understand that what is happening in the world, in the society, Perhaps it is about someone that you've never talked before. Um, sometimes the technologists went to uh, visit uh, people with uh, hearing disabilities. Um, sometimes it was about um, uh, aging. So then they went to see the elderly. And um, it was very fluffy in the beginning. It was people thought that the zero would never become one. But then when once they have this perspective of things, um, they came up with the project through the program. But now after two or three years, now we are seeing them as a very viable and important business for the city. 
So I see that it had a lot of impact and that we feel very comfortable and confident that what we did, the approach that we did was um, really uh, in, had a lot of impact to the city. What, what are the projects you, you have in the works? So for instance, um, now one company is now um, starting um, bike tourism. Mm-hmm. So um, this person, um, he is a professional cyclist um, in an earlier profession. And mm-hmm. then he was really passionate about cycling and bicycles from the beginning. Yeah. But now, as he sort of opened up to the city and societies and w- what is happening around tourism, and in fact, he realized that um, in Japan, there's a lot of um, development around roads and cars, but not much about um, smaller cities or smaller towns or villages with great scenery, but doesn't have that sufficient size for cars to go around. So he's now designing and producing bicycles, but then um, now targeting for different um, cities. Uh, so he could not only deliver bicycles, but also design the tourism and uh, explore um, different types of um, services and spots, uh, stopping points. Um, so that city can have not just the bikes, but also the services around it. For Miko, I wanted to ask you, um, I've also done myself, my, uh, my, my research master was on, um, citizenship and identity, um, in a wow. city, in the city of Amsterdam. So, um, your work kind of takes me back to that place. So yes. I wanted to ask you, um, what type of relationship have you observed people developing or building with the city as they dwell in it? So Amsterdam being one of the, um, interesting and uh, inspirational cases for us. Mm-hmm. So actually, I would love to hear more about your experience, Courtney. <laughs> yeah. But, um, so one thing I've realized is that, um, so once when we finished, uh, when we started off actually the Fukuoka project, a lot of the city government started to approach us. So now we are involved in um, so far, I think we've already um, been involved in approximately like maybe 10 cities in different size. And what we realized is that different cities have different assets. So although we try to sort of be engaged in the citizens, sometimes we are, um, in Fukuoka case, it was really the people who had this entrepreneurial spirit. Mm-hmm. But um, in Hiroshima, which is another city, which is about a couple hundred kilometers away from Fukuoka, um, they're not hardly, they're hardly entrepreneurial. They are more diligent, rather conservative. And um, there's lots of big companies, but not so many startups. But in that case, they have their own sort of like um, um love and affection to the city itself. So in their case, it's more through this um, sort of like an entrepreneur, mm-hmm. meaning that they not only serve for the city, but also serve for the team and the friends and the colleagues that they work for. And that's how they sort of see themselves sort of uh, being committed and to sort of uh, th- what they're passionate about. So different cities seem to have a different type of mindsets 
um, also different type of resources. So we are trying to really start to um, sort of explore that beforehand and to customize our um, programs for different cities. Yeah. Do, do you find that they have a strong opinion of, of uh, the citizens, I mean, of, of how they want their city to be and the assets that they put more emphasis on? Mm, I think that's a really good question. And um, I think that's one of the questions that I'm asking to myself consistently. Um, people do have some passion, but I'm not quite sure people feel that they have a right to talk about how the cities could be in the future. Mm. And um, especially if it's um, people like a young adults, mm-hmm. um, you know, most of the cases when the towns or the cities become smaller, they have to leave fairly early in their state, in their life stage from their city to study. Mm-hmm. Whether it be in high school or whether in university, um, the timing for them to depart from where their um, sort of like affection and um, hometown, the sense of hometown state, um, they have to leave fairly early. So I think it's really important that whether it being um, uh, sort of like children or <laughs> young adults or say adults, um, whether they feel that they have the right to speak up how their city city should be or could be or would be nice to be. Hmm. Um, I I feel like there needs to be more um, dialogue and perhaps a placeholder for them to speak up. And that's probably one of the things that our program is offering to different cities, meaning that um, whether you are already entrepreneur or uh, having a business, that's one thing. But whether they feel like they can be involved and have some passion towards the better future for the city, um, I think there should be more um, conversations and placeholders for the, those type of activities. Yes, I love it. Can I, can I maybe recommend uh, two books for you? Sure. It really, um, it really takes me back to my research. So one of them is, is, um, it's called, um, The Modernist City, um, an anthropological critique of Brasilia. And it's a fascinating book because, um, the, the project of Brasilia, who is the current capital of, of, uh, Brazil, um, they, the attempts to build Brasilia were actually an attempt to change society through architecture. Mm. So uh, it, it was a city that was built in the middle of the country um, with all the uh, ideology around what it means to have a city of your own that you built to unite the whole country. Um, right. And they, they brought a German architect um, that designed it in a particular way. And then people came to populate it. And the project, uh, the book actually explores the tensions between um, the intentions of the builders and the expectations of the dwellers. Um right. So, and it actually shows you in a very beautiful way how interconnected both are and how um, a space, it's a, it's a, it's a interdependence of all the elements that are inside of it. And it actually evolves and reproduces itself all the time together with a mix of people that choose to call it home. Um, Amazing. 
It's really, it's, it's a very beautiful book. Um, and the second one is called, it's actually a newer one, the, um, uh, the current one, and it's called Building and Dwelling, Ethics for the City, uh, by Richard Sennett. I'm not sure if you, if you know Richard. He's, he's actually a, um, a very, um, popular author in this space. I would say he has a, uh, quite a, a, quite a famous book called The Craftsman, where he explores mm-hmm. what it means. Yes, of course. Do you, you know it, right? Yes. Yes. So he has a new one now, um, which is also around this topic of, um, of building and dwelling and what yes. does, what, and, and to a certain extent, identity, um, and, um, contribution, right? And Definitely. citizenship and, and ethics. Um, it's, it's really cool. So, um, I, I, I would recommend you both. Um, yes. To, to I think, yes, definitely. Mm-hmm. I think uh, Richard's point about the craftsmanship was, I think it became a, quite a buzz here in Japan as well. Yeah, yeah. Um, Can you imagine? And some, yeah, yeah. And definitely, I think some of the work that we do around craftsmanship is also very much related to what he, he discussed in the book. So um, in some cases, <laughs> a lot of the cities, they say like, oh, we have this traditional craftsmanship. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we have this uh, type of ceramics for centuries and we want to make sure that people know how good they are. Hmm. And um, it's specifically now we're working with the Saga Prefecture, which has amazing, it, indeed, it is amazing, but expensive as well, hmm. <laughs> ceramics. Um, uh, that they are trying to reinvent. But then um, as uh, over the course of the project, which we call it new normal, um, we realized that it wasn't really about reinventing how makers make Mm -hmm. their crafts, Mm -hmm. but it was more about us, um, whether it being consumers or uh, people, for us to understand how those um, plates or those kind of craftsmanship can actually enrich our lives. Mm. So uh, we, we thought it was more about in, uh, improving the literacy <laughs> of the people who actually use and to appreciate those ceramics. So we're running those kind of projects as well in a different prefecture than the cases that I've already mentioned. Yeah, I, I think that that that's fascinating. You know, the the relationship that we have with objects and and how um, a prescript pre- prescriptive they are, and you know, like all these assumptions right. that are embedded in in the in the way we assume uh, we engage with objects. Uh, Definitely. Yeah. Definitely. Oh, that that sounds like a fascinating project. It's it's really it's um it's really visual to begin with. Mm. So once you see the picture or. Um, Maybe perhaps if you eat some of those examples, yeah, <laughs> you can. It's it's really simple and easy to overwrite our existing perception on things. And one of the cases was like um, the those um, ceramics or potteries, um, because we have so many convenience stores in Japan, and mm. then there's so many different types of food uh, they sell. And then we are somewhat used to or accustomed to eat from those plastic containers mm-hmm. that it's everywhere. But as soon as we put those um, food out from those plastic boxes and then put it into ceramics, you suddenly see those food in a very different way. And then you feel 
as if your food um, experience has sort of improved mm. like 200%. Yeah. <laughs> do you see that uh, do you see that being explicitly perceived like that? Um, well, I think not necessarily because we don't do that anymore. Uh, okay. <laughs> we don't have those expensive pots uh, or plates around us. Yeah. We don't surround ourselves and we perhaps forgot how those dishes um, serve us. And in case of Saga uh, Prefecture that we work, um, it's interesting because they also grow vegetables. So it's almost like a circular mm -hmm. yeah. um, from the same soil. Yes. And, uh, they make potteries. And then on the other hand, from um, having the sun, the same soil would grow the plants. Yeah. And then once you put those back into the plate, into our everyday dining space, then it's really almost... It's, it's it's very natural and it's also very enriching. <laughs> yes, yes. You know, um, uh, the the reason why I'm asking you uh, this is because of a project that I did before leaving New Zealand. In in New Zealand, um, I was contemplating a project uh, where w with a museum in um, in Wellington, where they were trying to understand how do people experience art. How do they, how do they feel when they look at a painting or when they look at a piece of pottery? And how can we understand, um, and maybe make a bit more tangible the, the enrichment that they feel in the moment of that engagement? And it was, it was very difficult for me because, um, even when you start using observation or asking people, they, 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 they pass it through the filter of their rationality. And it's, it's not so natural, um, to explain the bond between them and the object. And yes. when and when we were, because that museum was very popular and we've got a lot of international audiences, so when we had groups of people from Asia, they they had, I felt, they, they there was a more natural um, uh, kind of way of, of deconstructing the what they felt in the moment with the object. And uh, at the end, we ended up with a project using art um, as, a, as a facilitator for expression. Um, particularly for uh, for those people that um, yeah the the rat rational part or the observation part did not really work as a means to shine um, their emotions and their feelings you know but sorry for the long ramble <laughs> no 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 Japan it has this mixture of very much modernized and westernized industrialized aspect as much as some of those craftsmanship or traditional art crafts mm. trying to really promote us how different it could be things could be <laughs> and um but those world two worlds has been divided mm. so badly yeah and especially for those who are closer to those crafts it, it was a legacy yeah yeah but in a very positive but also negative way And when the whole society was thinking about how to um, be more financially uh, better or yeah. um, economically more successful, I think some of those values that you might as well call it Asian, mm -hmm. I think we have lost it somewhat on the way. And I think that has been the case, uh, especially in the say past century mm. or so mm. yeah so it's almost like 
um, it, it's it's funny. It's it's just the soil and the pottery just comes from it. But I think we are rediscovering, especially because we know that the economic um, return doesn't really um, give such fruitful life for everyone. I think it also it's very positive that um, some of those rural areas, which you will see it as um, having more problems or issues to overcome with, mm. might actually have more rich assets than the cities, which seem more affluent. And I think that's a very positive and strong message that we see today. How, how do they approach that? Do they do they see it also as um, as this um, potential force for transformation? Definitely, but I think um, the challenge that we're seeing um, since the earthquake is that once this national level of trust and um, somewhat a blind belief that um, tomorrow will be better than today mm. <laughs> um, somewhat collapses. I think um, for the, say, past decade or perhaps two decades, there has been this constant trend to go more local. Mm. But um, because um, the country also offers certain um, types of funding and sometimes you are not really ready to receive those money or maybe um, if you have the time and chance to discover those assets and then receive money, I think that will, that money is spent in a really meaningful, meaningful and purposeful way. Hmm. But when the nation just spreads the words and then um, spreads the money, <laughs> and then if you have to think about how to use it, um, the results sometimes is about um, an old existing plan that was made way mm. before how mm. they decided it should be used. And there's kind of a mismatch between the national policy and how it's executed in different uh, governments, local yeah. governments. Yeah, this, this sounds very familiar. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure everyone knows what I'm talking about. <laughs> yes, I, th I think it, uh, yeah, it passes the, the borders of a particular country or, or city, like this, this, uh, this type of tension between, uh, between um, the, uh, the local and the, and the government. I wanted to ask you, because we're, I'm, I'm aware that we're kind of nearing towards the end of, of this discussion, um, have you ever had an experience working with social scientists or anthropologists? Of, and how, if, if yes, how did you find it? Definitely. So um, to begin with, our company um, doesn't necessarily have um, what you call as designer. So we have um, people who was majored in um, technology or uh, architecture, uh, journalism. So um, we have all kinds of people um, in the team. And so for us, it was quite natural for um, to expand um, ourselves and reach back to our roots. And um, in particularly when we started to look into how um, how we can um, empower those individuals in the companies, which we call mature firms. Sometimes it's owned by, um, like a, as a, a family business. Sometimes it's a, already a large company, like uh, making automobiles or uh, 
some other products. Um, we immediately connected with um, two professors in uh, Illinois University. Now they, they are professors in engineering, but their approach to understanding how some of those um, innovators in those companies made things happen. It was very much of a, a social approach and we collaborated and studied how some of those Japanese serial innovators had made things happen. So that was one of the fascinating projects that we've um, collaborated with um, external researchers and had a really interesting outcomes. Nice. Glad to hear that. Um, well, Fumiko, I would love to keep talking about your project, uh, projects, particularly in this, in this space that is so close to my own personal heart. <laughs> uh, I, I had to really restrain myself not to start talking about my own, um, projects in Amsterdam, uh, because, uh, it was hard. Uh, when sometimes, you know, you, you, you have some speakers or some topics that, that you want to not be the host, but actually be the speaker on. <laughs> And then uh, it's uh, uh, it's hard to um, to pull that back, um, but I really really enjoyed um, talking to you and your experience on this on this topic, and I hope you, our listeners uh, have have had the same. Great, yeah. So thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you. Thank you for listening, everyone. Follow us on our social media channels and look at the show notes for links to our speaker's work. Join us next time for more interesting conversations.